Welcome, everyone, to episode 73 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and this week, I decided to stick with the haunted prison theme, and so today, we're going to be hearing about Alcatraz Island. But first, next week will be another week off for the podcast, so take that time to catch up on past episodes that you may have missed. Now let's just get right into the episode. Everyone, sit back. Make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Just like last week, we're going to first hear the history of the prison and then dive into the hauntings. United States Penitentiary Alcatraz Island, also known simply as Alcatraz or The Rock, was a maximum security federal prison on Alcatraz Island, one and a quarter mile off of the coast of San Francisco. The United States Department of Justice acquired the United States Disciplinary Barracks Pacific Branch on Alcatraz on October 12, 1933. The island became adapted and used as a prison of the Federal Bureau of Prisons in August 1934 after the buildings were modernized and security increased. Given this high security and the island's location in the cold waters and strong currents of San Francisco Bay, prison operators believed Alcatraz to be escape-proof and America's strongest prison. The three-story cell house included the four main cell blocks, A block through D block, the warden's office, visitation room, the library, and the barbershop. The prison cells typically measured nine feet by five feet and seven feet high. The cells were primitive and lacked privacy. They were furnished with a bed, a desk, a wash basin, a toilet, on the back of the wall, and a few items other than a blanket. African Americans were segregated from other inmates in cell designation due to racism during the Jim Crow era. D-Block housed the worst inmates, and six cells at its end were designated the whole. Prisoners with behavioral problems were sent to these for periods of often brutal punishment. The dining hall and kitchen extended from the main building. Prisoners and staff ate three meals a day together. The Alcatraz Hospital was located above the dining hall. Prison corridors were named after major U.S. streets, such as Broadway and Michigan Avenue of New York and Chicago, respectively. Working at the prison was considered a privilege for inmates. Those who earned privileges were employed in the model industries building 
in new industries building during the day, actively involved in providing for the military and jobs such as sewing and woodwork and performing various maintenance and laundry chores. After being closed in 1963 as a prison, Alcatraz has been reopened as a public museum. It is one of San Francisco's major tourist attractions, attracting some one and a half million visitors annually. Now operated by the National Park Service's Golden Gate National Recreation Area, the former prison is being restored and maintained. The main cell house was built incorporating some parts of Fort Alcatraz's citadel a partially fortified barracks from 1859 that had come to be used as a jail. A new cell house was built from 1910 to 1912 on a budget of $250,000. Upon completion, the 500-foot-long concrete building was reputedly the longest concrete building in the world at the time. The building was modernized in 1933 and 1934 and became the main cell house of the federal penitentiary. The building closed in 1963. When the new concrete prison was built, many materials were reused in its construction. Iron staircases in the interior and the cell house door near the barber shop at the end of A block were retained from the old citadel and massive granite blocks originally used as gun mounts were reused as the wharf's bulkheads and retaining walls. Many of the old cell bars were used to reinforce the walls, causing structural problems later due to the fact that many placed near the edge were subject to erosion from the salt air and wind over the years. After the United States Army used the island for over 80 years, it was transferred to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which hoped an escape-proof jail would help break the crime wave of the 1920s and 30s. The Department of Justice acquired the disciplinary barracks on Alcatraz on October 12, 1933, and it became a Federal Bureau of Prisons facility in August 1934. The hospital was checked by three officials from the Marine Hospital of San Francisco. The Bureau of Prisons personnel arrived on Alcatraz in early February. Among them was Acting Chief Clerk Lorino Mills. In April 1934, the old material was removed from the prison. Holes were cut in the concrete and 269 cell fronts were installed built using four carloads of steel ordered from the Stewart Ironworks. In June 1934, the Teletouch Corporation of New York began the installation of an electromagnetic gun or metal detecting system at Alcatraz. Detectors were added on the wharf at the front entrance into the cell block and at the rear entrance gate. The correctional officers were instructed on how to operate the new locking devices in July 1934, and both the United States Coast Guard and the San Francisco Police Department tested the new radio equipment. Final checks and assessments were made on the first two days of August. Alcatraz was intended for prisoners who continuously caused trouble at other federal prisons. It would be a last resort prison to hold the worst of the worst, who had no hope of rehabilitation. On August 11, 1934, 
the first batch of 137 prisoners arrived at Alcatraz from the United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, having traveled by rail to Santa Vanita, California. Before being escorted to Alcatraz, they were handcuffed in high-security coaches and guarded by some 60 FBI special agents, U.S. Marshals, and railway security officials. Most of the prisoners were notorious bank robbers, counterfeiters, or murderers. Alcatraz gained notoriety from its inception as the toughest prison in America, considered by many the world's most fearsome prison, prison of the day. Former prisoners reported brutality and inhumane conditions, which severely tested their sanity. Ed Woodkey was the first prisoner to commit suicide in Alcatraz. Rufy Percival chopped off his fingers after grabbing an axe from the fire truck, begging another inmate to do the same to his other hand. One writer described Alcatraz as the greatest garbage can of San Francisco Bay, into which every federal prison dumped its most rotten apples. In 1939, the new U.S. Attorney General, Frank Murphy, attacked the penitentiary, saying, The whole institution is conductive to psychology that builds up a sinister, ambitious attitude among prisoners. The prison's reputation was not helped by the arrival of more of America's most dangerous felons, including Robert Stroud, the Birdman of Alcatraz, in 1942. He entered the prison system at the age of 19 and never left, spending 17 years at Alcatraz. Stroud killed a guard, tangled with other inmates, and spent 42 of his 54 years in prison in solitary confinement, despite its reputation, with many former inmates calling it Alcatraz. Some prisoners reported that the living conditions there were much better than most other prisons in the country, especially the food, and many volunteered to come to Alcatraz. On December 3, 1940, Henry Young murdered fellow inmate Rufus McCain, running downstairs from the furniture shop to the tailor shop where McCain worked. Young violently stabbed McCain in the neck. McCain died five hours later. Young had been sent to Alcatraz for murder in 1933 and was later involved in an escape attempt during which gangster Doc Barker was shot to death. He spent nearly 22 months in solitary confinement as a result, but was eventually permitted to work in the furniture shop. Young went to trial in 1941, with his attorneys claiming that their client could not be held responsible for the murder, since he had allegedly been subjected to cruel and unusual punishment by prison guards prior to the act. The trial brought Alcatraz into further disrepute. Ultimately, Young was convicted of manslaughter, and his prison sentence was only extended by a few years. By the 1950s, conditions at Alcatraz had improved, and inmates were gradually permitted more privileges, such as playing musical instruments, watching movies on the weekends, painting, and radio use. The strict code of silence became more relaxed, and prisoners were permitted to talk quietly. However, it was by far the most expensive prison in the United States, and many still perceived it as America's most extreme jail. 
In his annual report for the 1952 Bureau of Prisons, Director James Bennett called for a more centralized institution to replace Alcatraz. A 1959 report indicated that the facility was over three times more expensive to run than the average American prison, $10 per prisoner per day compared to $3 in most other prisons. The problem was made worse by the building's structural deterioration from exposure to salt spray, which would require $5 million to fix. Major repairs began in 1958, but by 1961, engineers considered the prison a lost cause. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy submitted plans for a new maximum security institution at Marion, Illinois. The June 1962 escape from Alcatraz led to acrimonious investigations. Combined with the major structural problems and expensive operation, this led to its closure on March 21, 1963. The final Bureau of Prisons report said of Alcatraz, The institution served an important purpose in taking the strain off of the older and greatly overcrowded institutions in Atlanta, Leavenworth, and McNeil Island since it enabled us to move to the smaller, closely guarded institution for the escape artists, the big-time racketeers, the invernant conveyors, and those who needed protection from the groups. The former prison and island are now a museum. It is one of San Francisco's major tourist attractions, drawing in one and a half million visitors annually. Visitors arrive by boat and are given a tour of the cell house and island in a slideshow and audio narration with anecdotes from former inmates, guards, and rangers on Alcatraz. The atmosphere of the former penitentiary is still considered to be eerie, ghostly, and chilling. Protected by National Park Service and the National Register of Historic Places, the salt-damaged buildings of the former prison are now being restored and maintained. Now, we're going to hear about some of the reported hauntings inside the prison. From its first visitors, tales and legends of the island have circulated for several centuries. In the beginning, the Native Americans believed the island to be inhabited by evil spirits. As severe punishment for violations of tribal law, Indians were sometimes isolated on the island or even banished for life to live among the evil spirits. Today, these spirits that continue to lurk in the shadows of the often fog-enshrouded island have been heard, seen, and felt by both the staff and many visitors to Alcatraz. The sounds of men's voices, screams, whistles, clanging metal doors, and terrifying screams are said to be heard within these historic walls, especially near the dungeon. While the island served as a federal penitentiary, several guards reported extraordinary experiences, including hearing the sounds of sobbing and moaning, terrible smells, and reports of what they called the thing, an entity that was said to appear with glowing eyes. Other reports were made of phantom prisoners and soldiers appearing before the guards and families who lived on the island. Reportedly, even Warden Johnston, who did not believe in ghosts, once encountered the unmistakable sounds of a woman sobbing while leading several guests on a tour of the prison. The cries heard by the warden and the guests 
were described as coming from inside the walls of the dungeon. Just as the sobbing stopped, an icy cold wind blew through the group. Since the 1940s, apparitions have been seen at the site of the now burned-out shell of the warden's house. During a Christmas party at Warden Johnston's, several guards told the story of a ghostly man who suddenly appeared before them wearing a gray suit, brimmed cap, and sporting mutton-chop sideburns. As the startled guards stared at the apparition, the room suddenly turned very cold, and the fire in the Ben Franklin stove was extinguished. Less than a minute later, the spirit vanished. Often, it has been reported that the old lighthouse will suddenly appear on foggy nights, accompanied by an eerie whistling sound and a flashing green light that makes its way slowly around the island, appearing to both guards and visitors alike. The spectacle vanishes just as suddenly as it appears. When the prison was still open, other guards told of hearing phantom cannon and gunshots, accompanied by screams that were so real they sent the seasoned guards to the ground, believing the prisoners had somehow escaped and obtained weapons. After taking cover, the guards would then cautiously look about to see absolutely nothing. These incidents could never be explained. Another often reported experience of the guards was the smell of smoke that often came from a deserted laundry room, as if something was on fire. When they investigated, the black smoke was so thick it drove the guards from the room. However, just minutes later, the room was completely smoke-free. The notorious D-block of the prison is said to have been and continues to be the most haunted block in all of the prison. While first built the same as the other cell blocks, the Bureau of Prisons appropriated additional money for a more secure D-block after the 1939 escape attempt in which Arthur Doc Barker was killed. D-block, which became known as the Treatment Unit, comprised of 42 cells with varying degrees of restrictions. For all prisoners incarcerated in D-Block, there was no contact with the general population. 36 of the cells were virtually like the others in the general population. However, inmates were not allowed to work nor go to the mess hall for meals. They were allowed only one visit to the recreation yard and two showers each week, and all meals were served in the cells. Their only diversion was reading of prison-approved material. These cells all faced to the Golden Gate Bridge, from which fierce cold winds often blew. One guard who worked the D-Block was known to turn on the air conditioning to make it even colder for those confined on the block. Five of the remaining six cells in D-Block were known as strip cells, but were more often referred to as the hole, reserved for the most severe offenders of prison rules. These cells were located on the bottom tier, the coldest place in the prison, and contained only a sink, a toilet, and a low wattage light bulb that the guards could turn off. The prisoner's mattress were taken away during the day, and they were not allowed at any time in the yard or showers or given reading materials. Inmates could be sentenced to as many as 19 days in the hole completely isolated and in a state of constant boredom.
The last strip cell, known as the Oriental, was the most severe punishment a prison could assign. Assuring complete deprivation of all peripheral senses, the dark steel encased cell contained no sink or toilet, just a small hole in the floor for prisoner waste. Inmates were placed naked in the cell, given a restricted diet, and confined in a pitch black, cold environment. Although a sleeping mattress was allowed at night, it was removed at dawn each morning. Inmates were usually only subjected to this degree of punishment for one to two days. A former guard who worked at the prison in the 1940s reported that guards often saw the ghostly presence of a man dressed in late 1800s prison attire walking the hallway next to the strip cells. On one occasion, when an inmate was locked in the hole, he immediately began to scream that someone with glowing eyes was in there with him. The 19th century spectral prisoner had become so much of a practical joke among the guards that the convict's cries of being attacked were ignored. The inmates' screams continued well into the, to the night when they were suddenly replaced by total silence. When the guards inspected the cell the following morning, the convict was found dead with a terrible expression on his face and noticeable handprints around his throat. The autopsy revealed that the strangulation was not self-inflicted. At the time, many believed the inmate was strangled by a guard who had finally had enough of the inmate screaming. Though an investigation was made, no one ever admitted to the strangling. Most believed that the prisoner was killed by the restless, evil spirit of the 19th century prisoner who was often seen wandering the corridors. Adding to the mystery, when the guards line up the convicts for a daily count, one too many convicts were in the lineup. At the end of the row appeared the recently strangled convict. As everyone, guards and prisoners alike, looked on in stunned silence, the ghostly figure vanished. Today's visitors and staff often report cold spots within the hallways of D-Block, as well as sudden intense feelings. Cells 12 and 14D are the most active. Cell 14D is often reported to be almost 20 degrees colder than the rest of the cells on the block, and numerous psychics have felt emotionally charged impressions in the corners of the cell where punished prisoners were known to have crouched and suffered. These cells are so eerie that it is said that some park rangers refuse to go there alone. When authors Richard Winner and Nancy Osborne, authors of the book Haunted Houses, made a trip to Alcatraz, they also felt eerie feelings in cell 14D. When the pair entered the cell along with a park ranger, they all felt strong vibrations and tingling sensations in their hands and arms. Convinced that something or someone was there with them, Osborne stated that she had never felt so much psychic energy in one spot. On another occasion, when renowned ghost hunter Richard Sennett and Psychic spent the night in Alcatraz, Sennett locked himself in cell 12D, where an evil spirit is said to make his home. As the steel door was closed, the ghost hunter felt icy fingers wrap around his neck 
while they experience psychic visions of the bodies of twisted and dismembered men. In cell block C, many believe that the utility passageway where convicts Bernard Coy, Joseph Kretzer, and Marvin Hubbard were killed during their escape attempt in 1946 is haunted. Loud, clanging noises are often heard but stop when the door is opened, only to resume once closed. Others have reported seeing the apparitions of men wearing fatigues and hearing disembodied voices at the riot site that left the three prisoners dead. The laundry room in cell block C is also said to hold an unseen presence. When a CBS news stream brought in celebrity psychic Sylvia Brown along with ex-convict Leon Thompson, Sylvia immediately encountered the unseen presence and strong impressions of violence in the laundry room. As she described a tall man with a bald head and small beady eyes, Leon Thompson moved forward stating, I remember Butcher. He was a hitman with the Murder Incorporated before they caught him. His name was Abby Maldowitz, but we called him Butcher. Another prisoner killed him here in the laundry room. Prison records confirmed that Maldowitz was killed by another inmate in the laundry area of cell block C. In the old hospital ward, park personnel had often heard voices and the screams of inmates who were often secured to a table until they were calmed down. Voices are also heard in the old mess hall. When Al Capone was imprisoned at Alcatraz, he was assigned to a cell located on the outer west end of cell block B through the gangster was never allowed a musical instrument or radio, many have reported the sound of a phantom banjo strumming within his cell. Our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com and it is their experience while visiting Alcatraz Island. I'm on vacation this week and my husband and I took a short trip to San Francisco for the sole purpose of touring Alcatraz Island. Just getting there was an adventure in itself, but I won't bore you with the particulars in that leg of the journey. I never realized the close proximity between the island and the city of San Francisco until we were on the ferry. I can understand how torturous it must have been for those in the D-block cells to be able to see and at times here the activity of a very much alive and bustling city. So close and yet so far. Sounds cliche, but one needs to only make the trip to comprehend the truth of these words. While the weather in the Bay Area rivaled that of my current hometown of Las Vegas, an eerie fog rolled over and enshrouded the island. Standing on the landing dock and looking at the sky, we could literally see the fog rolling in the sky overhead. The wind blew constantly and chilled me to the bone, having forgotten my jacket in the hotel room in Oakland. Still, those who weren't suffering the same bout of forgetfulness were feeling the chill as well. Re regrettably, we had to opt for the afternoon tour, as the night tour had been booked well in advance. It was an audio tour, and we were each given a headset at the beginning, which I chose not to use. I think I was probably the only one to make such a choice, but I didn't want anything to interfere with what I might hear. 
Our plans to visit in the middle of September panned out really well, and I was very appreciative of the lack of children present. Nothing against kids, but they can cause unnecessary distractions. The tour rules recommend that children be at least nine years old, as it is quite a big place, and younger, smaller children would become bored and restless. The rules are very strict about unruly children, that unruliness isn't tolerated. There were only three children I saw the entire time I was on the island. One baby in a carrier, and a boy in a wheelchair accompanied by his brother. I mention the lack of children because my first experience involved hearing children laughing and playing in the area between the door to the outside recreation area and the mess hall. There, also, is the stairway to the upper floors of the A block. I heard them twice as we walked around that area. My research hasn't divulged any reports of child ghosts, but it is a fact that during the Native American occupation of the island during the late 1960s, a 13-year-old girl fell three floors to her death down a stairwell. The stairwell in question has never been mentioned, but I believe it is the one at the end of cell block A where I heard the children. The tour of blocks A, B, and C over, we proceeded to the infamous D block. I expected a dark, dreary, dungeon-like atmosphere, but was surprised at how well lit the hall was. It was depressing, though, since the light was from the nearly two stories of windows that the upper levels cells faced, giving the prisoners full view of the bay and the city. Torture indeed. With the exception of one cell on the ground level, all of the cells were dubbed the whole. Here in D-Block, many men lost their sanity, and a few lost their lives. I won't go into the history of these cells, as Google is a great source for that, but I will say that 14D is known to have claimed a life of one who, screaming in terror throughout the night that he was being attacked by a demon, was found dead in the morning with evidence of having been strangled. The first cell on the ground floor is just like all the others in the prison. It was here, though, that I refused to enter. My husband wanted to get a picture of me behind the bars, but I could not allow myself to enter this cell. Twice he insisted, and twice I said, fuck that, I'm not going in there. I felt a fear like I've never known, and a complete aversion to take even one step inside. I did, however, go into 14D, and I snapped a few pictures. Still had a very depressing feeling, but no fear like that first cell. On our way back to the landing dock, we saw the tiny outbuilding that was the morgue. We got in line to view the inside, and I was really excited. I have a somewhat morbid side, as I'm sure some of you can relate to. The outside door to the building has been removed, and a sheet of plexiglass placed over the opening. The room itself is below ground level, and one can peer through the glass to the room below. Taking any kind of picture through the plexiglass is futile, as the distortions are ridiculous. There is, however, a small space at the top, just large enough for the lens of my camera. So I took two through the glass and two through the small opening. I think you'll find the series of photos interesting. Some of the emotions I felt as I peered into the hole were there. 
grossed out, sad, happy, lonely, fearful, and finally relieved. Like I had been set free, all in a matter of seconds. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories, and if you did, please don't forget to rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube, and eventually helping me to reach my goal of 500 subscribers. Once again, once we hit 500, I will release a YouTube-exclusive episode. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support the show by joining on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you all for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.